You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. I invite you to join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter 2. We continue our series through the Gospel of Luke, so if you're if you're a guest here with us this morning, I, didn't, I did not I did not wake up this week and say, you know, I think I really just want to preach from Luke 2, 22 through, through 40, because most men probably don't just do that. Um, but this is just the next text in our series as our journey, in our journey through the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to go through it section by section, verse by verse, and this is the section. So today it's Luke 2, 22 through 40. While you're making your way there, I just want to point out, did you notice that there were two songs there that mentioned snow? Did you, did you, and I, and I just want to, I just want to clarify, number one, I did not choose the songs, okay, and number two, it must be a sign. That's all I'm saying. But then in the last song, it said rejoice because we go from, from winter into spring, in any case. So if you don't like snow, oh well, spring will be here soon enough. Enough of that. Let's get to the Bible. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. If you don't know by now, I like snow. And I know y'all think that's weird, but, but I like it. So bring it on. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Let's read God's word together. If you don't have a copy of God's word, the words will be up here on the screen. The Bible says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, then parenthetically, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. 
And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. And it is, it is holy, it is right, it is true. I, I thank you for the great privilege that I have to stand behind this sacred desk each and every week and to proclaim your word to your people. I pray that you would enable me to do that faithfully in this hour. Pray, God, that I would not stand here confident in any perceived ability of my own, uh, but that I would trust completely uh, in your ability to, to speak through a fallen and a broken vessel and a sinner such as myself. I pray, Lord, that you would equip me and enable me to preach in the power of your spirit here today, to comfort your people and to challenge your people at the same time, and that we would see the, the point of this text, that, that you would have us see uh, from the author, the divine author, Luke. Uh, above all, Lord, I just pray that you would be honored and glorified through the preaching of your word here today, that you would be exalted and lifted up. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I want to begin our time together this morning by reminding you of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. I made reference to Galatians 4, verse 4 in my previous message, but now we're going to expand that out a little bit and include verse 5. So the Apostle Paul says, very importantly, in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The phrase fullness of time there in Galatians 4, it indicates that the timing of Jesus' birth was not an accident. We talked a little bit about this in the previous message. As I mentioned two weeks ago, it wasn't an accident that Jesus was born during the, the golden age of the Roman Empire. I told you then that was known as the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. During this time, the Roman Empire experienced great expansion, great peace, economic prosperity, the building of roads and highways, great advancements in technology, that sort of thing. And, and the Romans believed that they were building a worldwide empire. They, they believed that they were taking the rule and reign of Caesar, the man who they believed had become a god. That's what they believed about Caesar during this time, that he was the man god. They, they believed that they were building a worldwide empire taking the rule and reign of the man-god Caesar to the ends of the earth. But as I explained in the previous message, in reality, they were just unwitting accomplices in taking the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the God who became man. They were just unwitting accomplices in taking his rule and reign to the ends of the earth. As I, as I mentioned, the first disciples of Jesus, they made great use of those Roman roads and highways and other aspects of the infrastructure and economic expansion to take the gospel to the city of Rome and then to far-flung places in the empire and then beyond the borders of the empire itself. And here we are 2,000 years later and we are on the other side of the world. And the Roman Empire no longer exists, does it? But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it still exists. 
And it continues to advance around the world as we, Christians, disciples of Christ, take the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts of men and women through the gospel message all throughout this world. So, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I don't believe it was an accident that Jesus was born during this this golden age or era of the Roman Empire. It's also not an accident, I don't believe, that Jesus was born near the end of Second Temple Judaism. And if that's not a term that you're familiar with, you should make yourself familiar with this term, Second Temple Judaism. The temple that we read about in the Gospels is the second Jewish temple. The first Jewish temple was destroyed by the Babylonians some 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And they, they took most of the Jews captive from Jerusalem and Judea. They took them to Babylon. And then when they returned to the land, then they built over a period of years this second temple. It was built after the Babylonian captivity. And with the second temple also came the rise of rabbinic and pharisaical Judaism. I want you to understand that. Rabbinic and Pharisaical Judaism did not exist during the period of the first temple. That only came to to be during the second temple. And so with the second temple came the rise of Rabbinic and Pharisaical Judaism, which emphasized the observance of the Old Testament law to a degree that had never never been observed before in the nation of Israel. They they took the observance of the law and emphasized it to the nth degree. Well, well, why is that? Well, the strict observance of the law was in part because they understood that the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the temple that first time, they understood that to be a part of God's judgment upon them. Because why? Because they had forsaken the law of God. And so when the Pharisees and the rabbis come along during this period of the second temple, they want to do everything that they can to make sure that the people of Israel remain faithful to the law because they don't want to be judged again by God. They don't want to lose their temple and so forth. And so by the time, well, one of the consequences of this is that by the time Jesus is born, these Pharisees and these rabbis, they had codified their own man-made laws. I think the number, don't quote me on this, but I think they had added their own 600 man-made laws on top of God's written law, which itself contains some 600 commandments. And so on top of that, they added their own, they codified their own man-made laws. What they, what they really wanted to do, these Pharisees and these, these rabbis, they, they basically wanted to build a fence around God's law to prevent people from transgressing the law. So think about a fence maybe that you have at your house. Well, why do we build fences around our homes today? Well, it's usually to keep dogs or, or, or pets in or to keep intruders or other animals from coming in. When we lived in Kernersville, we, we had a dog. Her name was Trixie, and we got her when she was a little puppy. And if you've ever raised a puppy, you know that puppies are wild things. And this dog was a wild thing. And I'm really grateful that we had a fence in our backyard, because if we did not have a fence in the backyard, she would have run wild. She would have escaped from the domain of my law, and she would have run through the streets of Kernersville. She would have eventually been nabbed by the dog catcher and sent off to doggy jail. In fact, fun little fact, that's where we found her, was in doggy jail. But we had this fence in the backyard, and the fence is intended to keep the dog within the domain of my law. Well, in the very same way, 
this fence that the Pharisees and the rabbis built, their own man-made laws, it was intended to keep the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, within the domain of God's law. Were their intentions good? Probably so. I think, I think, we would, I think Jesus would say that their intentions were good. But someone once said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, isn't it? Someone said that. I don't know who it is, but someone made that statement very famous. And I think it's very true. Indeed, and that's exactly what these people were doing. In, in adding their own man-made laws on top of God's law, they were indeed paving their very own road to perdition. If you don't believe me, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 13 and 15. It should be up here on the screen. And he's speaking to these, these people. And, and he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you, ne you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Listen, take, listen very carefully to what he's saying to these people. For, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And so church, I just want you to understand that, that in their, their zeal to keep the law, these Pharisees, rabbis, other religious elites, they actually became lawbreakers themselves. And, and in this way, they were no different than the Jews of the first temple. Because like the first temple, this second temple, it would be destroyed by a foreign power. And I believe also under the judgment of God because they had forsaken the law and they had forsaken his covenant once again. But this second temple will, will also be destroyed by a foreign power. It will be destroyed by the Roman Empire in 70 AD, just some 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when this temple is destroyed, that would forever end all of the blood sacrifices and ceremonial worship that is associated with what we call the Old Testament law and with the temple itself. And so again, let me remind you of the words of Paul from Galatians 4 because I think they're very instructive for us. And always remember this, Luke was a, a, a companion of Paul, right? And so Luke said, I mean, Paul says in, in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Now, I invite you, church, to notice the emphasis that Luke places upon the law in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 2. He says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the Law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you're keeping track, Luke mentions the law three times in the span of three verses. Now, he's, he's talking specifically about God's law. He's not talking about those man-made laws that I talked about earlier. Those will come to light a little bit later in the gospel. But Luke is, is talking about God's law, okay? And he, he makes this reference to God's law three times in the span of three verses immediately after we read of the birth of Jesus Christ. 
And so Luke is making one unmistakable point. It is so obvious that Stevie Wonder himself can see it. Jesus was born under the law. That is what he is trying to communicate to us. Now, there are a couple of specific laws in view here that I think we should stop and pause and consider very briefly. First, in verse 22, we read about purification according to the law. So, according to Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 through 6, a woman was considered unclean for a period of 40 days after the birth of a son. If she gave birth to a daughter, she was considered unclean for 60-some days. It's very confusing. You just need to take my word for it. You can go read it for yourself and do the math. But when a woman gave birth to a son, according to the Old Testament law, she was considered unclean for 40 days. To be considered unclean, according to the law, basically meant you had to be isolated. You couldn't join in with the worship, the, the, go to the synagogue, go to the temple. You had to be isolated while you were considered unclean. At the end of 40 days, they were to bring a sacrifice to a priest, and this would end the period of uncleanness. And so, guess what? Baby Jesus is 40 days old at this point in time in the story. The 40th day having arrived, Mary and Joseph, they go up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a mountain. They go up to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice in accordance with the law so that Mary would no longer be considered unclean. Some of you may have noticed that Luke mentions their purification. So that would also include Joseph. And you're like, well, why is he unclean? The only answer I can give to you for that is he's the one who delivered the baby. And so maybe he was considered unclean as well. We don't really know. That's the first law. Here's the second law. Verses 22 through 23. We read how Mary and Joseph present Jesus to the Lord according to the law. Now, this law goes all the way back to the very first Passover. Remember the Passover. Way back in, in Exodus, God redeemed the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And he, he sent a series of plagues upon the Egyptians and Pharaoh because Pharaoh would not let his people go. Charlton Heston reminded us of that, right? So a series of ten plagues. And the, the tenth and final plague was, God said, I'm going to strike down the firstborn in all the land, in all of Egypt. But he said to his people in Israel, the, the nation of Israel, he said, but here's the deal. If you sacrifice a lamb and you take the blood of the lamb and you apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of your home, my judgment will pass over your home and your firstborn will live. So that very first Passover comes and he strikes down the firstborn in all of Egypt, but the firstborn of the nation of Israel, they are spared. Here's why this is important. From that point forward, church, God decreed that every firstborn male of Israel would be dedicated to him, and not only dedicated, but the firstborn would also be redeemed. All right, so the, the child would actually be redeemed by an offering, the payment of a, a ransom price, a, a redemption fee, and I believe it was five shekels. Don't quote me on that. But if, if you couldn't afford the shekels, if you were poor then you could instead redeem the child with two turtle doves or two pigeons. Isn't there a Christmas song with two turtle doves in it? You know what, church? It's not an accident. As far as I know, it's not an accident. I think that song might be something about Jesus Christ. And so Mary and Joseph are poor. They can't afford the five shekels. So what do they do? They redeem Jesus with two turtle doves or two pigeons. The Redeemer 
is redeemed. Do you see the picture here that Luke is painting? If not, I'm going to paint it for you because this is hugely important. At the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is presented to the Lord with an offering of redemption in accordance with the law. Right? That, that's what happens here at the beginning of the gospel. But at the end of the gospel, Jesus will present himself to the Lord as an offering or a sacrifice of redemption, securing forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life, and also securing redemption for all of Israel from the law for those who would choose to believe. Do you see this picture here? I, maybe I'm just a nerd, but I think it's pretty cool. And I think we as God's people, we ought to see it. At the beginning of the gospel, he's offered as a, a uh, he's presented to the Lord with an offering of redemption. At the end of the gospel, he presents himself as an offering or a sacrifice of redemption to redeem Israel from the law. So indeed, again, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Here's why I think all of this is important. And here's how I think it connects to our text today. This is not, not an easy connection to make. I will grant you that. But as we continue to read from this point forward in the Gospel of Luke, we will notice that Jesus will come into conflict over and over and over again with these Pharisees and these scribes and these other religious elites. We all know that. We've read these stories before. We know that Jesus has conflict with these people all of the time. The majority of the conflict, not all of it, but a lot of the conflict that Jesus will enter into with these people is centered over the law and the interpretation of the law. And this coming conflict, I believe, is foreshadowed by the man who we meet next that Luke introduces us to beginning in verse 25. There you will see, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the Spirit of God revealed to Simeon that he would live to see the Lord's Christ. That's Yahweh's anointed, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the long-awaited King of the people of Israel. And we are told by Luke that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. If you like to mark your Bibles, maybe mark that phrase. It goes along with another phrase that we see a little bit later at the end of the text. But this is probably a reference to Isaiah 49, verse 13. And there the prophet Isaiah is prophesying of the time of the Messiah. And he says, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted or consoled his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So that, that's a messianic prophecy. And, and Simeon is waiting. He's been waiting all of his life for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And Isaiah really is telling God's people here to rejoice and to, and to sing with joy when the Messiah comes. Because he's going to come to comfort and to console his people. And he's going to do so with compassion all throughout the Gospels, you can't miss this. The, the Gospel writers always paint Jesus as a person of compassion. He has great compassion. And, and, and sometimes his compassion is directed towards the people of Israel. One of the Gospel writers will say, and he looked upon the crowds and he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without 
the shepherd. And that was their way of saying, this is the Messiah. This is the guy who is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. So Isaiah says, hey, sing for joy when the Messiah comes. Well, sure enough, Simeon is going to break out in his own little song of joy and praise in just a moment. But before we get there, we read in verse 27, and he came in the Spirit. The Spirit now leads him to see the Lord's Christ into the temple. And when the parents, it's Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him, that's Jesus, according to the custom of the law, you see that there, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. So just, just so you can see the picture, this guy who's been waiting for the consolation of Israel all of these years, now he, he has baby Jesus who's 40 days old and he has him in his arms. And he's about to say what he's about to say. He's singing the song of joy. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to live long enough to see this. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Stop right there. That, that is important, isn't it? He's holding baby Jesus in his arms, and he says, I have seen your salvation. And so just so that we are all clear in this room today and those who are listening online, to see Jesus is to see God's salvation. Somebody say amen. There, there is no other way of salvation. Can you say amen to that? Jesus Christ declared, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So to see Jesus is, in fact, to see God's salvation, God's one and only way of salvation. Here's, here's why I think this is important. I, I read a statistic this week that just knocked the socks off of me. I just, I could not, I could not believe what I was reading when I read it. And, and may, maybe it'll surprise you, but, but here it is. 54% of, and this, this comes from Lifeway, by the way. It was a recent survey within the last couple of years. 54% of evangelical Christians in the United States today believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Whether they be Jews, whether they be Muslims, whether they be Buddhists, whether they be Hindus, they affirm that God accepts, well, if, if, so long as they're sincere in their worship of God, whether they're Muslim, Jew, or Hindu, or Buddhist, or whatever it is, that God accepts their worship. 54%. These are people who claim to believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, where Jesus Christ declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Let, let us be very clear. God only accepts the worship of people who understand that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And I, and I know, I know that's not popular in the world in which we live. And there are lots of people out in the world today who would like to string me up on a tree for saying just that. But I, I will say it, God help me, until the day that I die. But church, you got to believe that. I hope you believe that. I really hope that you do. And I hope that you're not in this category of 54% of evangelicals. you got to believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. So he represents God's salvation, not just for Simeon, not just for Israel, but for all people, Simeon goes on in verse 31, he says that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So he says that to the Gentiles, and by the way, whenever you see Gentiles 
You could also substitute the word nations for that, and that's certainly true here. And so to the Gentiles and to the nations, Jesus represents light, the light of salvation, the, the light of the knowledge of God. And certainly Jesus would also be light to the people of Israel. There's no doubt about that. But it is especially true of the Gentiles, for as, as one commentator put it, their, their darkness was the deepest because at that time they had been alienated from the people of God. They didn't have access to the scriptures of God. They didn't have access to the prophets of, of God. And so to the nations, Jesus represents light, the light of salvation. Now, he also says that to Israel, Jesus represents glory. Well, why is that? Glory for them in that God chose this one nation to bring forth Christ to offer salvation to all nations. And so for them, Jesus Christ is their glory. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. So now he's going to prophesy and he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. So Simon predicts that Jesus will become the great divider. This is exactly what he's, what he's predicting here. He says, basically, mark well, young lady, Mark well that this child that you just gave birth to is 40 days old. He is set for the falling and for the rising of many in Israel. And so, in other words, a person's attitude towards Jesus, it's going to be decisive. Absolutely decisive. The, those who reject Jesus, according to the words of, of Simeon, they, they will fall. That means they will be excluded from salvation. They will be excluded from his eternal kingdom. But those who accept him... They will rise, they will be exalted by God, they will receive his salvation, and they will be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. Now, church, I want you to notice something really important here. Because Simeon says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Right, don't, don't miss this. This is, this is a really big deal from a Jewish-Israeli perspective. This is a huge deal, what he just says. Because th these are people, right, the Jews... Of Jesus' day, these are people who think, who believe that they're automatically in, that they're automatically citizens of the kingdom just because they are the people of Israel, because they are the physical descendants of Abraham. They think they've got their get-out-of-jail-free card already punched. They think they're already in and citizens of the kingdom based on that and that alone. Jesus will, will come along and he will make it abundantly clear that that is not the basis of salvation. In fact, just a couple of pages over from where we are in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist will, will begin this, and he'll look at the people who come to his baptism, and he will say, and don't you even begin to think that you're good to go because you're children of Abraham. That's exactly what he will say to them. And then he will say this, and he will say, because God is able to make children of Abraham out of these stones that are sitting right here. And Jesus would make the same point over and over and over again. Don't you think that you're good to go just because you are a part of the nation of Israel. Simeon predicts here what Jesus will later teach in Luke chapter 13. All right, in Luke chapter 13, somebody comes up to Jesus and says in verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Right, so, so this is a guy who's, who's picking up what Jesus is putting down. He's getting the message. He's, he's understanding what Jesus is saying, that just because you're Jewish or just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, that doesn't mean that you're in, that you're automatically a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom. And so he comes to Jesus and he wants clarification. Jesus, are, are you sure that, that those who are saved will be few? And Jesus says to him in verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you, when you Jews 
see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but, but you yourselves are, are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. The people of the nations will, will be invited into the kingdom and they will come into the kingdom. And behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first will be last. So just be very clear. Many in Israel will rise or fall according to what they do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with their ancestry. It has nothing to do with the physical descendants of Abraham. It has nothing to do that they're part of the corporate people of God. So, quote unquote, the chosen people of God. It has everything to do with what you do with Jesus. That's true 2,000 years ago, and it's still true today. Simeon goes on to say, and for a sign that is opposed. He's speaking to Jesus. This child's going to be a sign that is opposed. And then he gives the parenthetical statement, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. Young lady, when you see this child offer himself as a sacrifice of redemption, yeah, a, a sword is going to pierce your own soul. It's a prophecy of his death on the cross. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So you'll see that Simeon says that Jesus will be a sign that is opposed. So those who oppose Jesus will reveal their opposition through their thoughts about Jesus. That may sound a little confusing, but they would show whether or not they are for him or against him through their actions. They will reveal the thoughts inside of their hearts and in their minds. And once again, Simeon is prophesying what Jesus will later teach. He will say in Luke chapter 11, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let me say it this way. When it comes to Jesus, there is no neutrality. You can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. It's just, it's, it's a fool's errand. There was a guy in the Civil War, I've read, he lived in Kentucky, and he tried his very best to be, uh, to be uh, neutral. He, he didn't want to pick sides. He didn't want to be a Yankee, and he didn't want to be a rebel. And so he decided he would wear gray pants and a blue shirt. And it ended up that he was shot at from both sides. And he learned really quick, can't be neutral. You got to choose, man. You got to choose. And that's, that's the truth when it comes to Jesus. You can't be neutral. You're either with him or you're against him. You either, you either believe him or you don't. You either believe in, in his words and his teachings and in his gospel or you don't. But there is no neutrality. Ultimately, Simeon here is prophesying of the coming conflict that Jesus will face. Conflict over the law. Now, in verse 36, we are introduced to another prophet. And we read there, and there was a prophetess. Anna is her name. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. You will notice that Anna is, is said to be a prophetess. And just in case you know, that is concerning to some of you, you should know that this is not unusual in the Bible. There are actually quite a bit of female prophets in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we learn of Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, Isaiah's wife. They are female prophets. The New Testament identifies Anna here in the four daughters of Philip in Acts chapter 21 as female prophets. So let me be clear about something this morning before I clarify what I'm about to say, and that is this. Females can have a prophetic role. Now, you hear me say that, some of you go, oh, I can't believe he just said that. Well, let me clarify what a prophet is for just a moment, okay? What is a prophet? 
Because there's a lot of confusion about what a prophet is. A prophet simply means, or is someone who simply speaks for God. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who stands up and says, thus saith the Lord. We oftentimes think of prophets as someone who gets a vision of the future. By and large, most prophets do not have a vision of the future. Every once in a while, God will give his prophets that kind of thing, that kind of gift. But by and large, a prophet is simply someone who stands up and says, this is what God has said. All right? So there are female prophets in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are female prophets still alive today. Let me say this, however. The role of a prophet is not the same as the role of a pastor. <laughs> Although pastors do have a prophetic role. So let me say it this way, because this is my favorite way to say it. Not all prophets are pastors, but all pastors better be prophets. Somebody say amen. You better say amen to that. So we, we have a problem today. We do have a problem in the church today. And, and it really has nothing to do with female prophets. I know there are a lot of female prophets out there, and a lot of people run them down and say all kinds of things about them. And, and maybe some of them shouldn't be doing what they're doing. I'm not here to decide that. But I will tell you this, we do have a problem today, and it doesn't have anything to do with female prophets. The problem that we have in our churches today is men who come and stand behind this sacred desk each and every week, and they, and they fail in their prophetic duty. They stand up here and they fail to declare the word of God. They fail to come up here and say, thus saith the Lord. That is a problem. That is a problem that we have in many of our churches today. And God help me if I ever come into this pulpit and fail to say to you what the Lord has said. And I'm serious when I say this. If I ever do that, you have permission to yank me by my collar in the seat of my britches and to carry me to the brow of the hill and the edge of town and throw me off the cliff. No, I'm serious, because I'm never going to do it. <laughs> but really, guys, this is a problem in a lot of our churches. Men who come and they, and they fail in their prophetic duty. There are guys out there preaching anything but what the Lord has said in his holy word. God, God help me if, if that's ever said of me. In any case, whoever this Annie is, she, she had a special prophetic ministry from the Lord. She was married for seven years before her husband died. She spent the last 84 years worshiping, fasting, praying, prophesying at the temple. I've tried to do the math a couple times, and I think when you do the math, I think you'll conclude that she's over 100 years old. She's old. Like Willard Scott had her on the Today Show some time ago. Willard Scott was maybe even alive when she was alive. God rest his soul. She's over 100 years old when this happens. Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In church, Anna has been waiting for the, the fullness of time. That's what she's been waiting for, her 100 years on this earth. When the Messiah would come and redeem the people of Israel from the law. And when she sees this child who had come to do just that, she gives praise and thanks to God, just as Isaiah prophesied and told God's people to do. And church, you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. This is fundamentally who we should be as God's people today, people who live genuine lives of praise and thankfulness for who Jesus is and for what he has come to do for us and how he has redeemed us from the law. Aren't you, aren't you so thankful, church? You should be thankful 
that you don't have to go up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. You don't have to go to a priest to be named clean. Jesus has made you clean by his blood on the cross. You don't have to have an altar in your backyard where you make sacrifices. You, you don't have to, to worry and to wonder each and every year on the Day of Atonement whether or not God has forgiven you of your sin. You don't have to worry about any of that. Jesus Christ has, has taken care of all of that when he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin and was raised to life again. Man, if that don't, if that don't light your fire, your wood is, is wet. So we, we should be people who rejoice and live lives of thanksgiving and praise for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now in verse 39, Luke wraps it up, and I'm about to wrap it up too. He says, and when they had performed everything, according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. If you're keeping track, and I know you are, this is the fifth mention of the law in this passage. And verse 39 here is, is what we, we refer to in biblical interpretation as an inclusio. An inclusio is really, really important. And all that simply means is at the beginning of this passage, there was an emphasis on the law. We mentioned that three times in three verses. Now at the end of the passage, guess what? He's emphasizing the law once again. That's called an inclusio. And whenever you see an inclusio, that's a tip. That's letting you know that this really is the idea, the main idea that the divinely inspired author is trying to get across to his audience. And so he is telling us something really important about the law. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph performed everything according to the law. He takes great care to tell us that Jesus is raised in a home of faithful and pious Jews. Mary and Joseph, they love the law of God. They love it, and they observe the law, the law of God faithfully, as faithfully as anyone can do it. Well, why is this important? Well, here's why. Because later on, when Jesus enters into conflict with these Pharisees and scribes and others, and his conflict over the law... They will label him a rebel. They'll say, well, he's, he's rebelling. He's rebelling against God's law. And quite naturally, they, they might also wonder, well, well, is he a rebel? Is he rebelling against the law because he was raised in a home of rebels? Did Mary and Joseph teach this, this man to rebel against God's law? And, and Luke is kind enough to give us, the reader, the answer to that question up front. We know right away from this section that that is not the case. Mary and Joseph did not teach Jesus to rebel against the law because they sought to observe the law very faithfully, as faithfully as anyone could. And Jesus himself was not actually a rebel either. How many of you remember the movie, the James Dean movie? This was before my time. The James Dean movie, Rebel Without a Cause. Do you remember that movie? No, okay. Well, in any case, James Dean was the rebel without a cause. Sometime after that movie, somebody thought it was a great idea to print shirts and to put a picture of Jesus on the shirt and to have a message up here that says, Rebel with a cause. Maybe you have that shirt. or Maybe you have a poster that says that. Can I just be honest with you for just a moment? I really don't like that. And I really don't think, I, re I really don't think it captures, actually, I, I think it's the opposite of, of what the biblical writers want us to understand about Jesus. Jesus was not a rebel in any sense of the word. The Pharisees, the scribes, they're the rebels. You and I, we, we are the rebels. Jesus was not a rebel. And Jesus made it very, very clear that that was the case. He said, I have not come to destroy the law, 
but to fulfill it. The problem was never with the law itself. God's law was perfect. God's law was right. God's law is, is right, and it is true. And Jesus upheld the law perfectly in his time on earth. He was not a rebel in any sense of the word. The problem was with the interpretation and the application of the law by the Pharisees, the rabbis, the religious elites of his day. The problem was, was the fence that they built around God's law that was intended to keep the Jews within the domain of God's law, but actually turned them into transgressors of the law itself, as I said before. And this is why I think Jesus came along and he said, as Pastor Jacob read for us earlier, the two greatest commandments are to, to love God and to love your neighbor. And all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said, took the, the entirety of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, he said, the, the Old Testament law can be dwindled down to these two laws right here. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he looks at these Pharisees and these scribes, he says, you guys, you, you guys have gone hog wild by, by adding all of these additional laws to God's law. And, and really what you have done by this is you're preventing people from actually fulfilling the law. You're preventing people from truly loving God and loving their neighbor as themselves. And so in, in their zeal to keep the law, the Pharisees and the rabbis, they, they elevated law keeping to, to a level of idolatry. That's what they did. And in so doing, they, they forgot the whole point of the law. They, they turned the law into something that it was never created to be. It was never created or intended to be a strict set of do's and don'ts and, and rigid religiosity. It was intended to instruct the people of God and the nation of Israel how to love God and to love their neighbor. Think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. The Ten Commandments, in case you don't know this, divided into two parts. The first four of those Ten Commandments, they teach us how to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. The second six <laughs> teach us how to love our neighbor as our self. This is who God's people, this is who we're supposed to be, is God's people. People who strive to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. So let me conclude with this. It's the first Sunday of the new year, 2024. Let me, let me conclude with a challenge for each of us and myself included. At the beginning of this year, because this is a great time to stop and to, and to take stock of, of where we are spiritually and take stock of our walk with the Lord. The beginning of 2024, ask yourself, maybe write these questions down if you want, but ask yourself these questions. Is there something or some things in my life that are hindering me from loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind. We live in a world where there, there are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of things that can distract God's people from loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Ask that question of yourself. Here's another question. Is there something or some things in my life that are hindering me from loving my neighbor as myself? It's a good question to ask. Is there, is there something in your life that maybe you've turned into an idol, maybe? Say, how do I know if I have an idol? One way to know if you have an idol is you get angry if you can't have whatever this is. That's one way to detect an idol in your life. Is there something in your life that you've turned into an idol? Do you live by your own man-made legalism and laws 
that prevent you from truly loving your neighbor or brother and sister in Christ? That's a good question for us to ask as well. Whatever it is, church, ask God to reveal it to you, and he will, and ask him to help change your heart. Ask him to align your heart with his heart. Make this the prayer uh, for 2024. God, help me to love you with all my heart, soul, and mind, and to love my neighbor as myself. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the great privilege that I have, that I have to stand here and to preach your word to your people each and every week and to declare the wonderful truth of your gospel each and every week. Pray for myself and I pray that I would be faithful to do what you have called me to do. That I would be faithful in my prophetic duty to proclaim your word, not my word, but your word and your word alone. I pray, God, that I would also lead by example. That I would be a man who demonstrates what it means to love you with all my heart, soul, and mind. and To love my neighbors, myself. And I pray that for all of my hearers today. I pray, God, that we would, as a corporate body, not just as individuals, but as a a body of believers, that we would be people who are committed to loving you and to loving our neighbors as ourselves. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song, and it is a time of invitation. And so if God is speaking to you for whatever reason, you know, make sure you respond. Don't, don't leave this place without responding to whatever it is that God would have you respond to today through the singing, through the preaching, whatever, whatever it is. And maybe there's someone here this morning they've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today's the day. Make 2024 the year that you receive the gift of God's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, I would encourage you to come.